Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is September 25th, 2018, and because it is Tuesday, it's time for the Tuesday Morning Quarterback with Greg Easterbrook. Boy, we have a lot to talk about today, and I'm obsessed about some of the things that you're writing about in your column, Greg. Well, glad to hear it. Nice to be here, Charlie. All right. Well, you start off by saying it finally happened. This is what America's been waiting for, a Harvard-to-Harvard NFL touchdown. What happened? Yeah, last night in, in, in Monday Night Football, Ryan Fitzpatrick to Cameron Bright, both Harvard products, both Harvard graduates. They both have their diploma, caught a touchdown on national television, uh, threw and caught. And while they did this, blocking for them was a guy named Ali Marpet, who's not well known because he's an offensive lineman, but he's from Hobart. So you had a Hobart guy blocking for two Harvard guys. Um, but maybe this is the direction the NFL is going in. Uh, apparently, because we just don't, we're not elitist enough as a culture. We, we, we just don't have, you know, we, we don't we don't have enough elite prep schools. And look, we're going to come back to uh, one of my other obsessions, which we talked about last week. The NFL apparently banning the sacking of the quarterback. And I think your proposal last week to actually have flags on uh, the quarterback. I think that that's going to take place in, in our lifetime. I think we're actually going to see that. Uh, also, uh, the gloominess of uh, superhero movies. But before we do this. This seems really timely to me as we prepare for the apocalypse of the of the Kavanaugh hearing later this week, this whole culture of uh, prep schools. And I mentioned to you before we started this, I I've been sort of ranting and railing about the the, uh, uh, the, the, the the fact that, you know, everyone that runs America apparently knows one another and goes to the same prep school that 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 all of the rest of us are sort of the unwashed. Um, now, you point. Let's let's talk about Georgetown prep, which. We ought to remind people, as you do, that Georgetown Prep is not in Georgetown. So why is it called Georgetown Prep? No, it's 15 miles away from Georgetown. It's just marketing. My longstanding comment about this school is it's located – I live in Bethesda where uh, Mm. Georgetown Prep is. And it's located on, on a highway that if you look on the map is Maryland Route 355. And my longstanding point about this school is that if, if everything about it was exactly the same, same campus, same instructors, same quality of education, except it was called Route 355 prep, no rich parents would send their boys there. They're sending their boys mm-hmm. to a place called Georgetown Prep because it makes it sound as if they were educated in Georgetown and, and not just to them, the New York Times, as recently as last week, <laughs> was saying that that Brett Kavanaugh had gone to high school in Georgetown, in the district, not at a place that was named after Georgetown, but it worked perfectly. What you there's, uh, I I think we all know that there are some places in the country where public schools are horrible, and parents and and local politicians seem determined to keep them that way. Right. So parent, a responsible parent has a good reason to want to put a child into a private prep school or into a parochial school or in, into a magnet school, anything to get away from a terrible public school. But the last two Supreme Court nominees, Neil Gorsuch, who is now a justice, and Brad Kavanaugh, who's now a nominee, both went to Georgetown Prep, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, home to some of the best public schools in the entire world. If you had to pick one place in the world to send a child to public school, Bethesda would be 
one of the best places. And yet their parents sent them to Georgetown Prep. Why not for an education? Because you're purchasing status. Uh, just like in the old British aristocracy, if you got enough money together, you could buy a title. In, in the current American world, you buy status by buying admission to a school that at the high school level that 99% of American families can't afford. And I, I go into in this week's TMQ, the fact that uh, assuming that uh, of the eight people who are on the Supreme Court right now, and uh, assuming Kavanaugh will go in as is likely, there will be no one on the Supreme Court who went to a regular public high school in his or her. Oh, you race. know that 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 really that's where I, that's where I stop when I read it. Now, now before we get into this, and I do want to go more, you know, in, more in depth in, into all this. Uh, before people think that we're sounding like a bunch of Sandinistas here, there is a difference between meritocracy and aristocracy. There's a difference between um, a meritocratic system and a strictly elitist system. And your point here is that these schools are not chosen because they are. Uh, they are they are better. It is the fact that they are buying status, that the they attending an elite, an elitist prep institution, you write, is a way to purchase social status and insider connections. And oddly enough, uh, well, maybe not oddly enough, uh, even Christine uh, Blasey Ford you know, went to another you know, very expensive, exclusive school, Holton Arms School, rather than to nearby public schools, which you describe as quite uh, excellent. You know, th this was one of the things that I started thinking about when you realized that you have two potential Supreme Court justices. I mean, Gorsuch is and, and Kavanaugh go to this prep school and 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 it is a school that 99 percent of Americans couldn't afford. And, and this sentence really jumped out at me. What does it say about the Supreme Court that even long past the Gilded Age, this lifetime tenure aristocracy still has members who attended expensive prep schools in order to buy their way into status? Now, people will say, look, don't you want like the best, the brightest, the smartest, you know, best educated judges on the Supreme Court? I mean, what, what are you saying, Greg? I mean, do, do you would you want people who went to, you know, the Colorado School of Mining or something? Oh, wait a minute. I'm a Colorado College graduate. But I, but I, I <laughs> but 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 I, 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 I say in the piece that, of course, as judges and justices, we want really smart people who are really well educated. But you don't have to go to a prep school. For that to happen, the function of the prep school is not. Again, if you live in an area with bad public schools, then you, as a responsible parent, may have no choice. But in most cases, and especially in Bethesda, Maryland, the function of the prep school is not to improve your education, yeah. your knowledge of the. The function is to purchase an arist aristocratic yeah. title that will follow you through life. And I can, I know wherever I speak, I live in Bethesda, Maryland. My wife and I have three kids. All three went to Bethesda's public schools. All three traded on the excellent education they received at public schools and regular public schools, not magnet schools, to for admission to top 10 colleges that my wife and I are not graduates of. So legacy had nothing to do with it. You can get a great education in a public school. What you cannot get is the purchase of an aristocratic title. And that's what was going on with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. When you, you point out the pattern here, John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, and Sonia Sotomayor went to private Catholic schools that restricted mission by exams. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Samuel Alito, Elena Kagan attended public schools, but public magnet schools whose admission exams barred most of their, their peers. 
So right now, there is no one on the Supreme Court, as you pointed out, who started at a regular public school, and Kavanaugh would maintain that elitism. Okay, the second point you make in this column is about the whole culture of the frat boy. And of course, America is getting a a sort of a, a, a crash course in the culture of fraternities. Um, your your section in um, in the Tuesday morning quarterback TMQ is Twilight of the Frat Boy. What do you mean? Well, if you think of how our culture is changing, uh, and, and, and I attribute this thought mainly to a, a legal, independent legal scholar named Ted Frank, um, whatever fraternities and also sororities were in the past, you know, their main problem was that fraternities made boys boorish and sororities made girls super petty and superficial. And those are not the worst things in the world that can happen. But if you think of what's wrong with their cultures, two big things, excessive, well, one big thing, excessive drinking combined with meticulous record keeping. So what's go- what's going to destroy your career 20 years in the future in a social media culture? Oh, you belong to that fraternity, the one where the you were in that sorority, the one where the now 20 years ago, you didn't know that. All you knew was that somebody had gone to Yale and that he was a Delta. Now you're going to know exactly what went wrong in that fraternity in every particular year. You'll have the date. You'll have the pictures. This stuff is going to come back to destroy the lives of men and women who've gone to fancy colleges mainly. And, and I think. As, as people catch on to that, that, that there's, there's a supply and demand equation with fraternities and fraternities. People want to join them. I think people are going to stop wanting to join. Yeah, I mean, as you point out, you know, once people sort of realize, you know, when the word gets around, students won't want to rush. And, and, that, and that will be that. Um, and and th- there is something anachronistic about uh, about these exclusive clubs. But um, by the way, before we, we we move on from this, this prep school thing, is this is this a, an East Coast phenomenon? I mean, we, we obviously have, you know, uh, well, we don't call them prep schools uh, here. You know, we have we have private elite academies throughout the, the Midwest. But there seems to be something distinctive about this, uh, about, about the East Coast or or maybe even more distinctive about the Washington culture, um, the the you know, in order to go to Georgetown prep, you have to you know have been born into a family that is already part of the Washington elite. I mean, in 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 terms of the perpetuation of a specific Washington culture, it, I mean, it 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 doesn't seem to be something that we have pretty much in the rest of the country. Or am I wrong about that? Uh, there are some in the rest of the country, for instance, Long Beach Poly, a famous prep school in, mm-hmm. in Southern California. But I, I think it is more of a Northeast thing. And remember, it dates to the time when a prep school was literally a prep school in the sense that public education did not prepare one for college because only 5% of of 18-year-olds ever enrolled in college. So you needed to go to a different environment, a prep environment to prepare you for the for the college education that the public schools didn't prepare you for, public schools prepared you to enter one of the trades. Um, so the the background of the prep school is mainly in the Northeast, and that's why, for instance, West Point has a prep school because hmm. 150 years ago, West Point needed a prep school. Most of the people it was recruiting didn't have any public school experience in the liberal arts, in the Greek classics, et cetera. So you'd go to the West Point prep school for a year, and then you would be prepared. 
that's that's what the original function of these schools was. Now the function is to allow wealthy families to buy insider status. And we I, see it on I, the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I I kind of have a random question about this. One of the one of the again, maybe it's a it's a minor aspect of the story. It's hard to tell what's important and what uh, what's minor is that, uh, you know, people are going through now the yearbooks. I mean, we're at this point now we're going through high school yearbooks, but people have combed through the uh, Georgetown prep yearbook and, and found multiple, I think something like 23 references to a young woman named Renate, Renata, um, who um, went to a, went obviously went to another school, and the references are to you know R- Renata um, alumnus. And, you know the implication is is that they were bragging about some sort of a sexual conquest of this woman who is now horrified to learn you know that she was talked about and written about in 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 this way. And Brett Kavanaugh is also listed as a as an alumnus of of this uh, of the of this young woman. And my reaction to that was. And I don't remember, I don't know whether you, you know, had a high school yearbook, you know, back in the day, but were there no faculty advisors or grownups or adults that were overseeing this process? Is this part of the culture of of, of the prep school that these kids are so privileged, are so entitled that they could publish a yearbook and nobody would say, why are you mocking this or defaming this young woman? Uh, well, first I'll say, assuming the hearing actually happens on Thursday, we're, we're, we're going to be treated to the spectacle of some senator waving the yearbook yep, and saying, now, judge, on page 62 of your high school yearbook, you say, uh, it's just, <laughs> oh, my God, is the, in the United States Senate incapable of dignity at this point? Yeah, uh, well, I think we know the answer to that. We know the answer. I went to a big public high school in Buffalo, New York, and I normally have my senior year yearbook. I, I have it on my shelf with an easy reach. And I, and I clearly recall, I don't think this is a simulated memory. I think this is a real memory. I clearly recall members of my class fighting with the faculty advisors about our, the prerogative of saying anything in the yearbook that we wanted. And we basically won on that. Now, if there's some hidden message that's insulting to people, no, nobody, I, I think that would be inappropriate, but, but the woman Renata or Renee, to mm-hmm. however you pronounce her name, sorry, we don't know how to pronounce it. Yes. Uh, we know from the news coverage that she didn't know that she was insulted in code in her high school yearbook until a couple of days ago when the New York Times told her. Mm-hmm. So if the offense was to insult a woman in, in, in code in your high school yearbook, who's the carrier of this offense the new york times is well now let me push back on that i mean it's not her high school it's not her yearbook she never saw the yearbook because of course she went to a different school she went to a different school right it was yeah george and, was a boy's school right right so um and 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 she had signed the letter of support for kavanaugh and then finding out by the way you know in his yearbook he bragged that he was, you know, part of the Renata alumnus. Again, you know, we're not talking about the future of the of the U.S. Su- Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, th- th- this is what uh, I-, I think is so tragic about this particular moment. I mean, somebody describes this as the culture wars on steroids. And, and, it-, and it is you have uh, you have these, uh, you know, irreconcilable differences over cultural issues. You have, you know, at the-, at the at the same time, you have what is ultimately an unknowable fact situation from 30 plus years ago, uh, you know, in a world in which we all have our alternative reality. So. We have that story, which I still am. I'm, I'm, I am. And you've been in journalism for many years. I am 
still amazed that the New Yorker would have published the story about a woman saying, you know, 36 years ago, I think maybe I remember this happened, but it took her six days to remember all of that. And there's absolute zero corroboration. Isn't that the kind of story that reporters and editors go, okay, this is interesting, but it's certainly not publication worthy. Well, and I just complained about the New York Times. That's why the New York Times passed on that story. Mm -hmm. They heard about it first and they said that this just doesn't meet any kind of journalistic standard that anyone is familiar with. And when when you think about this stuff is one of the things that's been happening in our culture for way too long is the gradual lowering of all kinds of standards. Are we now going to lower the standards for future nominees, whether Mm -hmm. they be Republican or Democratic, the next Democratic person who wants to be on the Supreme Court or or who is proposed for is the very first thing the Judiciary Committee is going to say is, okay, let's see your high school yearbook. Uh, It's just, my God, it's so ridiculous. No, and I I think uh, both parties have tremendous risks. I just don't think they're going to be able to restrain themselves from behaving badly later this week, but we will see. Now, speaking of things, this this seems timely here, speaking of things that can come back and haunt you, because I I do think that this is is a reality for anyone below a certain age. Um, The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by ExpressVPN. Now, if if you are at all concerned about things coming back to you, um, you know, understand that it's kind of hard not to worry about the record, the, the the digital footprint you leave behind. I mean, making an online purchase or accessing your email could put all of your private information at risk, and it does go into your permanent record. Remember when they used to threaten you and say, you know what, if you do this, it'll go in your permanent record. You always wondered, what, what the hell was the permanent record? Well, it does exist online, and you are being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. Well, that's why a lot of folks have decided to take back their privacy by using ExpressVPN. And uh, I do not go online without making sure that ExpressVPN is on. And it's very easy to use. The apps run seamlessly in the background um, of your computer, your phone, your tablet. It only takes one click to turn ExpressVPN on. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. That is the price of privacy. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, This is the solution, ExpressVPN. If you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So you can actually start protecting your online activity today. You can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Okay, Greg, we talked about this last week and it, uh, you know, know, are you ever going to be able to sack a quarterback? Well, first of all, can you explain what the rule now apparently is about sacking a quarterback because Clay Matthews got dinged again, and he's not the only player who's finding out that the NFL has decided that uh, 
that quarterbacks are so fragile that you can't actually tackle them anymore. I don't think anybody can explain what the rule is now. Uh, the the NFL, is, as your listeners may know, is this year switched to mostly full-time officials who are earning two hundred to 300000 dollars a year just to officiate NFL games. That's all they do, and they can't make up their mind what the new penalty is. Clay Matthews was flagged for what seemed to everybody who had ever played football, a perfectly clean legal hit uh, so in the same game. Uh, the Aaron Rodgers, the Packers quarterback, was picked up and body slammed to the ground and there was no flag. Athletes will tell you with officials, well, you always want is consistency. The rules are whatever the league wants them to be, whatever the rules are is what they are, but call the play consistently. And when sometime action A is a foul and sometime action A is perfectly legal, it drives everybody crazy. This is why I, I am in earnest when I say, let's put flags on the quarterback. Whether your flag has been pulled is is an objective standard. There's no arguing about whether your flag has been pulled. So let's put flags on the quarterback and stop arguing about this. Um, and, and I'm I'm telling you, I think you you've laid that out. This is going to happen. We we know that we're headed in this particular direction. No, this specific uh, plays that you 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 mentioned, of course. So this is Packer centric because you know the weekly standard. We're all Packer centric, but but the 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 videos of of. Uh, of Aaron Rodgers being slammed to the ground and it being a no call versus the Clay Matthews sack, which was called, it just makes no sense. And you can play that on a loop and, and ask somebody, can you explain what the standards are and the total inconsistency? Speaking of adventures in officiating, um, I'm kind of interested in, in in what you write about the jet sweep flip, which I will admit I was not familiar with. And now the way in which the jet sweep flip is being called has become very controversial. So ex explain what it is and what happened. This is a trendy play in college football that's appeared in the NFL for the first time in the initial games of this season. Most of what you see in college football originates at the high school level and most of what in, ter in terms of tactics and most of what you see in the NFL originates at the college level. So for several years now, college teams, especially ones that run up-tempo offenses have been using the jet sweep flip. A guy goes in motion from way outside. He's running sideways toward the quarterback. He passes the quarterback just as the ball is snapped. The quarterback doesn't even catch the snap. He just taps the ball forward to the guy going in front of him. The guy going in front of him gets essentially a really fast handoff, and he runs wide in the opposite direction. And the beauty of it, if you're a coach, is that what's technically happened is a forward pass. So if either of the guys drop the ball, it's just an incompletion, it's not a fumble. Well, the, the NFL hasn't learned to officiate this play yet. In some cases where this play has happened, including, including the Miami versus Raiders game on Sunday, officials have correctly ruled this play to be a forward pass. In some cases, they've ruled it to be a handoff and thus can lead to a fumble. And they need to get that straightened out real fast because it should be a forward pass. Yeah, uh, pretty obvious. Uh, you have a little uh, section on uh, Drew Brees uh, here, and you've talked about him b before. Uh, you're kind of a Drew Brees fan, aren't you? I'm a huge Drew Brees fan. If you look at that, he's, he now has the most completions in NFL history. He has a good chance of several other yards. If you look at the total number of 5,000-yard passing seasons in NFL history, there have been – Drew Brees has four of them. 
all other quarterbacks combined have one of them. This guy's really effective, and it's not, and he's not particularly big. If you stood next to Drew Brees, you would, and you didn't know that he was Drew Brees, you would just say he's some guy on the street. He's not tall, he's not muscular, and that he is a fantastic athlete. I think people tend to look at his numbers and say, oh, well, he must just be a product of a system. No, he's a product of being a fantastic athlete, and he, he showed it in the game in Atlanta where he spun around not one but two Falcons defenders to score a touchdown. You uh, you, you also note that uh, in, in the NFL there's, there's a real – uh, there's a real culture of what have you done for us lately pointing out um, just tell me what you pointed out about the Vikings and the and the Jaguars what we saw over the weekend and what their fans what their fans are doing to what two two teams that have had a pretty good record up until now last year they both they, they both were fabulous in their conferences they both made their conference title games that is they came within one mm-hmm. game of making the super bowl they both played at home this weekend and their home fans both relentlessly booed the vikings and the jaguars what have you done? sure you almost made the super bowl 3 games ago but what have you done for us lately uh, yeah so much for minnesota nice you well, know you, you you wouldn't think that vikings fans would relentlessly booing the vikings at home even though they did stink well, I, I think any professional athlete would admit you pay a hundred bucks to get into the game. If you want to boo, you've paid for the privilege. Now, what, what you accomplish by booing your own team, uh, that I don't know, but but you did pay to get in, so it's you can cathartic. do whatever you want. Yeah. It is it's just cathartic. Okay, since we've talked about uh, elitist prep schools, uh, frat boys, uh, um, w- wimpy NFL officiating, we obviously, the obvious segue is now to talk about superhero movies. You, you write it in, in, in TMQ that even superhero movies have gone fashionably gloomy. Talk right. We get, we get this. The, the world is always ending in new superhero movies. Now, it's part of the structure. There's so many superheroes. They have so many powers that just taking on a bank robber or something like that is no longer a challenge. You have to take on an immortal being from another dimension who wants to destroy the universe. But the most recent big superheroes movie with Avengers infinity war. And I'm, and I'm sure all readers of intellectual publications have been to see Avengers infinity war. I, uh, the premise of okay, the movie, first of all, do you, do you recommend it? Because I have a bunch of, uh, I'm, you know, flights and I'm looking for movies to watch on flight. Would this be something that would be you recommend? I think it's okay. I think the two most recent superhero movies that are actually worth your time to watch are Wonder Woman and Black Panther. Yeah, I've seen both of those. Yeah, they're a little different. The standard superhero movie is nine heroes appear, somebody materializes from another dimension, they hurl energy bolts at each other, the world is about to end, and then one of the superheroes gets mad and distru- and saves the world. So uh, that's kind of what's happening in Infinity Wars. But, um, but the premise of the movie is that the 30-foot-tall guy from another dimension who is invincible wants to kill half of the intelligent beings in the universe, including half of the people on the planet Earth, because that's the only way to save the ecology. Too mm. many people too many people are bad for the environment. And yes, it's a shame that I'll have to kill trillions of people, but that'll save the environment. Isn't that a good thing to save the environment? This isn't a mass market movie that's sold eight hundred million dollars in tickets or whatever whatever is now and of course it's complete nonsense but it's complete nonsense it's being mass marketed by hollywood to very large numbers of people 
Well, you, you, you mentioned that Jonathan Last has actually argued that some people consider uh, th- this guy was a th- Thanos is a movie hero because he gets rid of all of this uh, excess population and, and creates a, you know, peaceful, richly green planet, uh, you know, with, without all these uh, polluters. Yeah, you see this great, this 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 great in the sense of psychological revealing. See in the end where he's just killed half the people on the planet Earth, mm. and and instantly the environment recovers and is green and happy everywhere, and birds are singing, and and the 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 thirty foot tall purple guy looks out on this and smiles and and you know ah now thing we've gotten rid of people people are horrible now we have nature and we can worship nature and, and of course nothing is more destructive than nature but that's that's a second uh, topic so you're suggesting that thomas malthus is having a a you know, resurgence that well this, I, you know it's springtime for thomas malthus and his malthusian I, theories I say in TMQ, and I give other examples of recent big-budget movies that have labored under the same fallacy, I, I say it's a lucky thing that Thomas Malthus wasn't 30 feet tall, purple, and able to teleport himself between dimensions, because he would have killed half the people on the Earth. But the things that the things that Malthus believed, most prominently the population would always grow faster than agricultural supplies would grow, have on observation turned out to be completely wrong. Agricultural supplies in all but a couple of years in recent centuries have grown faster than population has grown. So the basic concept that Malthus had in his head, we observed that in the world it doesn't happen, but but we still trendy lefties want to believe it. And now they've got, now they've got a superhero movie in which it happens. Yeah, and we're always being told that that it is the right that is anti-science, but the evidence is overwhelming <laughs> that in fact, you know, our resources are um, are being developed quicker than than the population. Even though, and you quote Jeff Bezos saying just this year that Earth will have to stop growing because room and resources are running out. United Nations, you know, keeps uh, talking about uh, you know global population peaking in about uh, 2075. Um, well, actually, you were saying that, in, in fact, the United Nations is refuting all of that. The odds are that room and resources will be ample through this this transition. And yet it is almost a religious faith that somehow, um, we, you know, that, 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 that people are a, a, a plague. On, on the left, you have to think that people are bad or to be more precise, you have to think that other People are bad because uh, if, if you get rid of people, then you could have the California beaches to yourself, which obviously is a big issue for the rich of California. You could have the highways to yourself. You could go to Yellowstone. There wouldn't be any tasteless people driving snow machines. Other people are bad in leftist ideology. There's all, all kinds of things wrong with, with right wing ideology, of course. But if, if you look at what the big threats are to planet Earth. Global warming is real. Climate change is a genuine concern. It's nothing as a threat compared to human beings going to war with each other. Um, the, the things that we do to ourselves voluntarily are, are, are much greater than the threats caused by resource consumption or population growth. Yes, but but it, but if half the pop, half the intelligent population of America was in fact killed by an evil superhero. It would make it easier to get into Georgetown Prep, wouldn't it? It would make it a lot easier, and then there would only be 10 people on the Judiciary Committee (laughs) to to wave the high school yearbook from 35 years ago. Greg Easterbrook, thank you for joining me. You can read the whole TMQ column up at the Weekly Standard every Tuesday during the NFL season. 
And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.